Well, thank you, Mike. You know, uh, we spent a lot of time waiting. I did a little research uh, this week in preparation for our continuing series through the book of Acts here. And according to a Timex survey, Americans wait on average 20 minutes a day at the bus or train station, 32 minutes at the doctor or dentist, and 28 minutes waiting in security lines at the airport, which I want to know what their source is for that, because my experience has been a lot longer than 28 minutes, I assure you. Uh, most Americans, I'm told, spend 13 hours a year waiting on hold for customer service. That's according to Time Magazine, 13 hours a year. The average American commuter spends 38 hours each year waiting in traffic, according to a study by The Atlantic. And they went on to say that commuters in big cities average actually more like 50 hours a year. And according to the New York Times, Americans annually spend 37 billion hours collectively waiting in some line or another. Put all the lines together, grocery store, doctor, you name it, waiting in line to collectively 37 billion hours. You know, I spend, spend a great deal of my life flying when I was uh, traveling, uh, doing conference ministry full time. And uh, I spent a lot of time waiting at airports. In fact, for about eight or nine years, I would uh, be on the road 200 days a year or more. And I hated flying. I still do. Uh, even though I, I definitely racked up the miles and got all the perks that come with the top tier, you know, frequent flyer status, it, it never made up for the hassle of flying in my mind. I could write a book about all the crazy experiences I had, canceled flights, weather delays, mechanical issues, you name it. But I remember one experience, for some reason it stuck with me through the years, and, and I, the situation was this, I had back-to-back uh, meetings uh, in two different cities, and so I'd spoken in one place, then I was to hop on a plane and travel to Boston, I remember that much. Uh, and, you know, I couldn't wait as I was approaching the airport uh, on the plane in, to, to, into Logan Airport to just get off the plane, get to my rental car, get to the hotel and crash. I was just exhausted and I knew I had another big day coming up the next day. Well, as we're approaching the airport, the pilot comes over the PA and he says something to the effect of, ladies and gentlemen, we've not been given permission to land just yet, so we're going to have to circle the airport in a holding pattern. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. That's happened from time to time. If you've flown, you've probably had that happen to you. But for some reason, on this particular occasion, I just wasn't, wasn't walking in the spirit in that moment. I was in the flesh, and I just didn't really appreciate it, and I was just frustrated. And the longer we circled, the angrier I got. And I found myself having a conversation with myself. At least I hope it was to myself. I hope the person next to me didn't see my lips moving. But I thought, why now? Why this? Why can't we just land, you know? And, and, and not knowing the circumstances, because, uh, you know, the pilot didn't give a lot of details. He just said, eh, we're going to be holding pattern for a while. I'll let you know. Hang tight, you know. Uh, and so I started even getting angrier. You know, why doesn't the pilot explain what's going on? Is it the weather? Is it something on the ground? How much longer, right? Well, when I finally got to bed late that night, I remember lying there in my hotel room thinking, I was doing a little psychoanalyzing, right? Thinking, why was I so upset? You know? Of course, it's easier to have those moments of self-introspection after the fact when you're safely in your bed and comfortable and thinking about the past day. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about it that the reason I got so angry was because I had no control over the circumstances. I was in the dark. I had no control over when we could land. No control over the holding pattern. 
All I could do was wait. You know, we don't mind waiting if we know what's going on. Usually we can kind of steel ourselves and say, oh, you know, it's a little bit longer. I know what's happening. I can see the end point. It's kind of like today when you drive, most of our travel these days is by car, and we take long trips, pull a trailer, uh, and, and, you know, in the old days when you travel, if, the, if you ran into a, a, a slowdown or a traffic jam on the freeway, you just kind of had to wonder, kind of like me in that holding pattern on the plane. But nowadays, you know, you can pull out your smartphone, and you've got Google Maps or Apple Maps, and it'll tell you, you know, uh, there's a wreck up ahead, the exact mile marker. It'll tell you how long the delay is going to be, and then you can kind of decide, do I get off here with these thousands of other cars that are abandoning the freeway, or do I stick it out and wait for it to, to clear? Uh, and so it's a little bit easier to tolerate, but when we're in the dark, it can be really hard to wait, can't it? And that's especially true when you're waiting on the Lord, waiting for prayers to be answered, waiting for God to intervene in some difficult situation. I want to read a portion of uh, Psalm 27. That's not our text. We're going to be in Acts as we continue our series, but this is a passage that came to my mind as I was thinking about waiting on the Lord. Uh, this week. And, uh, you know, King David certainly knew a thing or two about waiting on the Lord. He frequently found himself in difficult uh, circumstances. And he said this in Psalm 27. I'll just read a few verses. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? This may sound familiar. A lot of people have memorized the first uh, verse of Psalm 27. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. David frequently found himself at war with neighboring nations. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And then notice these last two verses in this psalm, if we skip ahead. He said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And those two verses have meant a lot to me through the years, going all the way back to my college days and just the experiences and the ebb and flow of life and the journey that we've had. And I've shared these verses many times with people that were also facing difficult times of uncertainty. Wait on the Lord. And as we return to our study of uh, the Apostle Paul and our journey through the book of Acts and the early church, we come to the end of chapter 23 and all of chapter 24. One section here, I'm going to try to kind of walk through all of it very quickly uh, this morning, but we come to a change in setting. You know, the last few weeks we've been camped out in Jerusalem. It's actually only been five days from uh, Paul's perspective, but or 12 days, I guess I should say, 12 days he's been in Jerusalem. But we've been kind of focusing in on each of the, the different experiences that he has there. But this morning in our study, we come to a change in setting. It moves from Jerusalem to Caesarea, about 65 miles northwest uh, of Jerusalem. Since arriving in Jerusalem on the eve of Pentecost, May 25th, 57 AD, Paul has just faced one crisis after another. He's had to deal with ravenous mobs, 
with deceitful, unbelieving Jewish leaders, and of course, as we looked at last time, with deadly conspiracies trying to assassinate him. And when the Roman commander became aware of the plot to assassinate Paul that we looked at last time, he secretly helps Paul escape Jerusalem under cover of night. And it occurred to me as I was reading this account this week, I wonder what was going through Paul's mind at that point. When he finally, was he finally going to escape the ire of the Jewish leaders? Was this going to finally resolve itself? Could this finally be the end? But little did he know as he was being whisked away in the middle of the night that this was just the beginning of a two-year waiting period in his life. Two years. He arrives in Caesarea on June 5th, 57 A.D., and Luke tells us he was there for two years. If we piece together a timeline of the apostolic age, we know he was there from June of 57 A.D. to August of 59 A.D., so actually a little more than two years. And we can learn a thing or two about waiting on the Lord from Paul's experience. So I want to take us through the narrative, point out some observations of what's going on in the text, and then just draw three principles to remember when waiting on the Lord. And the first one is this. While you wait, resist the urge to take matters into your own hands. Resist the urge to take matters into your own hand. Let's pick it up in verse 23. The commander, Claudius Lysias, realized that Paul's enemies in Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they would stop at nothing to see him dead. And as long as Paul was in Jerusalem, there was a danger of rioting. And so he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, that's nine o'clock at night, and, bring, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So the total number of soldiers was probably 470. There's a little bit of a question in the Greek about that word spearmen. See where it says 200 spearmen. It's, it's, it's un, a little bit ambiguous whether that refers to the horsemen themselves or the horses. So it was either 270 soldiers and, you know, four and, and, and 270 horsemen separately or, or excuse me, 470 horsemen uh, or 470 soldiers themselves. Uh, most people think it was 470 soldiers, but either way, that's a huge entourage. I mean, this Roman commander was leaving nothing to doubt. He did not want the assassination of a Roman citizen on his record. And so he took precautions. He, he did it under cover of night, 9 o'clock at night. And Paul's guards, you know, treated him with respect, as we're going to see as we read through this, uh, the rest of this uh, passage. Um, they, uh, they made sure that uh, he had a place to stay and uh, that he had horses to carry his stuff on. He was a Roman citizen, and they weren't sure exactly what was going on, but they were going to, you know, Felix was going to, uh, he was hoping Felix would get to uh, the bottom of it. So let's pick it up in verse 25. I'm going to go back and forth between putting certain verses on the screen and reading others just for the sake of time. But if you pick it up in verse 25, we see that uh, Claudius Lysias wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And so he's kind of casting himself in a positive light here. 
Uh, he, he leaves out the part about where he almost had him scourged, <laughs> uh, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. But anyway, and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their counsel. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death and change. Yeah, he found that out just in the nick of time. He was just about to have him scourged. But anyway, when I was told that the Jews lay in wait for the man, he, he heard about this plot from Paul's nephew, if you remember, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to come and state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So the commander sent a copy of that letter with Paul. And in Lysias' judgment, Paul was not guilty of any crime. He certainly didn't deserve death or imprisonment. But in his mind, the case involved questions related to the Jewish law. And by the way, as we read through the book of Acts, we find that every Roman magistrate before whom Paul appeared, Gallio, Lysias, Felix, later Festus, declared him innocent. So we pick up the story in verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. So a large group of Roman soldiers escorts Paul through the Judean hill country and the foothills under cover of night all the way up to Antipatris, which is about 37 miles northwest, uh, about halfway or so uh, to uh, a little more than halfway to Caesarea. Then they stopped there, and it says the next day they left the horsemen to go back to go on with him, and they returned to the barracks. So the foot soldiers returned back to the fortress of Antonia in Jerusalem, uh, but the 70 remaining cavalry soldiers, or possibly 270, depending on how you read it, uh, continued to escort him the rest of the way. They were out of immediate danger. They were out of the the mountainous area where people, you know, could hide and pop out and cause problems. They were in an open area. So they continued to go uh, on their way without quite as large of an entourage on, in the middle of uh, the daylight. And then we read, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked to Paul, what province are you from? And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And then he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So Felix, Antonius Felix, was the governor of Judea from AD 52 to 59. And to put it in context, this is the same office that Pontius Pilate had held when Jesus was crucified. He held office from 26 to 36 AD. And Felix had a reputation for being a harsh ruler who had risen up from a lowly background. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus, who lived in the second half of the first century, he said, quote, Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of the king with all the instincts of a slave. So Felix, as we read, inquired about Paul's home province. Well, why would he ask that? Well, because if Paul had come from an area in the empire that had its own ruler, in addition to having a Roman governor, then that local authority would have to come be invited to witness the proceedings. But as it turns out, Cilicia was not such a place, and so Felix could deal with Paul directly on his own. <clears throat> and he wanted to hear the testimony of these Jewish accusers, these Jewish leaders. Um, and this was required by law. Uh, so he was just simply following the law. So he, he kept Paul in the governor's official residence. Herod's praetorium, which Herod the Great had built, uh, was, uh, was what we call the, the praetorium here, this uh, re official residence where Felix lived. And uh, in that time, Paul's 
you know, could have visitors. He was again treated well, but he was definitely uh, constrained, uh, and he was waiting until these accusers arrived from Jerusalem uh, to, before the hearing would start. So Paul's arrival in Caesarea marks the beginning of a two-year waiting period. Two years. And during this time, he defended himself and he defended the gospel before two governors and a king. Remember what we read in Acts chapter 9. The Lord said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So this was a fulfillment of God's plan uh, for Paul's life. Now, think about it. If Paul had taken matters into his own hands, he, he never would have had these opportunities to share the gospel. As we're going to see when we read on, he, he spent quite a bit of time individually evangelizing Felix and his, his wife. So the first thing we learned is resist the urge to take matters into your own hands. Think of all the different things Paul could have done to try to get out of this plight. Think about all the opportunities he had. He was, you know, fairly well treated. He, he kind of had a favorable uh, arrangement with the Roman rulers and the guards and the centurions. He could have taken matters into his own hands, but he didn't. He waited. So while you wait, when there's nothing you can do, do nothing. When the doors are all closed, stay put. Don't force the matter. Give the Lord time to work. And by the way, Paul was simply practicing what he preached in this regard because not long before this, remember if you think about the recent history of our, of our study, he finished his third missionary journey, then he heads to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And right at the very end of his third missionary journey, he writes uh, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and 2 Corinthians. And in his book to Romans, which was written just a few months before what we're studying right now this morning, he reminded people to be patient in tribulation. To be patient in tribulation. And that's what Paul was evidencing. Earlier in the book of Romans, he had reminded us, we're saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, that's when we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, did you ever stop to think that if, if we were never in the dark, if we never had periods where we wondered what was going on, we couldn't explain it, we didn't know what was around the corner, we didn't know how things were going to shake out, we're left wondering what's going on, if we never had occasions like that, we wouldn't have a reason to hope. Because if you can see it all, if you can figure it out, if you know what comes next and what's lurking around the corner, no reason to hope. You, got it. you can see it, plain as day. Just let that sink in for a moment. Hope that is seen is not hope. And Paul was in a waiting period when he wasn't sure what was going to happen next. And waiting on the Lord builds hope. King David, in another one of his psalms, said, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Have you been there? Been there in a tough situation where, you know, unjustly people are injuring you, causing harm, and you just have to wait? Do not fret. We looked a few a year or so ago, we did a series through some selected psalms. And I remember when we looked at Psalm 37. I focused in on that phrase, do not fret. And I talked about how in the old King James it says, fret not. Which I said sounds like a character from, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or something. Fret not, you know. But it's a good reminder. Two words, fret not. Fret not. The writer of Hebrews uh, uses Abraham as an example of someone who uh, 
patiently endured. He said, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he endured the promise. I mean, he obtained the promise. Remember, you know, Abraham had to wait decades, a couple of decades at least, until he received the promised child, Isaac. Peter puts it this way, what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. James, the Lord's brother, wrote, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. By the way, if you're hoping that this waiting period will end soon, we do have a uh, what they call a, not a terminus ad quem, the ending point for sure. And that's when the Lord comes. Now hopefully, for those of us that are in a waiting period, we don't have to wait quite that long. Or hopefully the Lord comes back today. Amen. But for sure, we know the waiting will be over when the Lord comes back. But notice he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and latter rains. The early rains in Israel happened after they planted in late October and early November. And then the late rains came later in March and early April. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, that means the Lord can come at any time, at any moment. And because the Lord could come at any moment, believers should be patient and not get ahead of the Lord when waiting on His deliverance. Don't take matters into your own hands. And as we return to the text, we pick it up in chapter 24. We read, After five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and the certain orator named Tertullus. That word orator is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. Uh, the New American Standard translates it attorney. The New International Version, NIV, translates it lawyer. Uh, the actual Greek word refers to a lawyer who is especially skilled or gifted at speech, at oratory. So the New King James, which I'm reading from here, translates it orator. So they hired this attorney to come represent them as the prosecution and make their case against Paul. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying. So before we get to the prosecution, a couple of observations here. First of all, you can kind of get a sense for the intensity of the Jews' hatred of Paul by how quickly they were able to get this group together, hire an attorney, and get down to or up to Caesarea, right? Five days. And it's also kind of an indication of their antagonism toward Paul that the high priest himself came along. This was a big deal. He wanted to be there. He didn't send delegates. And, uh, and then again, as they hired a special attorney, it shows how important this was to them. The unbelieving Jewish leaders knew they had no case on the facts of the matter, so they brought in someone who could spin it and make it sound good and try to bring down Paul. Remember, they wanted to kill Paul. There were 40 people that were involved in a conspiracy to ransack Paul at night and, and after a ruse to try to get him out of the uh, uh, fortress of Antonia and head back to the uh, chamber of Hewn Stone where they were going to meet with him again at, with the Sanhedrin. So let's look first at the prosecution's argument. I'm going to read this from verses 2 through 9. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, quote, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. In other words, just one big, you know, schmooze to try to get, you know, in good with him. Nevertheless, 
Not to be too tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He literally coins a phrase. That's the only time Christians are ever referred to as the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by with great force and with great force took him out of our hands. Kind of throwing Lysias under the bus there. Commanding his accusers to come to you. Well, by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And then Luke tells us all the Jews that were there in the gallery, in the courtroom, if you will, assented. You know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Amen. He's, he's right. You know, me too. They said these things were so. So Tertullus basically has three charges, if you will. First of all, he charges Paul personally with heresy. Secondly, political charge of treason. And then thirdly, a religious charge of, of blasphemy or, or, or sacrilege. First, he says he's a public menace and a troublemaker who stirs up dissension throughout the Roman Empire, having stirred up Jews everywhere he went. And that's a pretty serious charge because Rome, of course, sought to preserve the peace in the world and, and Jewish uprisings were a perennial problem and they were dealt with rather harshly. So he leads off with that. And then secondly, he pictures Paul as the leader of a cult outside of mainstream Judaism, the sect of the Nazarenes. That's the only time that phrase is used anywhere in the Bible. In other words, he's not just one of these Christians. He's a particularly bad kind of Christian. You know, that, that's kind of the way he was casting it. And then thirdly, he claims that Paul tried to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, this is not the first time this has come up. The Jews in Jerusalem accused Paul of bringing Trophimus, the Asian Jews that had come down from Asia, accused Paul of bringing Trophimus into a Gentile into the temple, which, of course, was not true. Um, and so here they're making the same tired old claim. So all of Paul's accusers, the Jews, confirmed these charges. And undoubtedly, at that moment, they expected Felix to execute Paul quickly, maybe even on the spot. Because Felix had repeatedly crucified the leaders of uprisings for disturbing the peace of Rome. But in verse 10, Paul begins his defense. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. And as we look at Paul's defense, we notice the second reminder, and that is, while you wait, keep the big picture in mind. While you wait, keep the big picture in mind. See, Paul understood that God was at work even while he was waiting to see th how things unfolded. God is always at work. He never sleeps. And Paul understood that. We're going to see this from the comments that he makes in his defense. He knew something bigger was at play here. It just wasn't about him and his circumstance. And I think the application here is when it seems like we're in limbo, when it seems like nothing is happening, don't despair. God is at work. He's always at work. He never sleeps, right? So here's Paul's defense, <clears throat> picking it up in verse 11. Uh, I, do more certainly, I do more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. 
And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So Paul answers the first charge by saying, look, Your Honor, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. I really even haven't had much time to be a pest. And they have not provided one single eyewitness testimony that says I was. And as far as leading a cult, he says basically, as he goes on in his defense, all of that I'm teaching harmonizes perfectly with the Hebrew Scriptures. And that, that, we're going to look at that in just a second, but that's a pretty powerful statement. Uh, and this would have helped Felix see that the conflict at hand was one of a religious nature between Paul, a Christian, born again by faith, and the Jews. It was nothing to do with politics the way Tortullus had implied in his prosecution. And then thirdly, in terms of sacrilege and blasphemy, Paul replied that he had gone to, to Jerusalem just to worship. He'd gone to, to bring money to the Jews there and present offerings to the Lord, not to stir up political trouble. It was the furthest thing from his mind. And his accusers had not uh, proven in any way that he even carried on a discussion in the temple or the synagogues or in the city, much less fomented a riot. There was no evidence to support these charges against him. Then we pick it up in verse 14. He goes on, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Notice this believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. And you ought to underline that phrase because it's a reminder that Paul, formerly a, a, a hater of Christians and a murderer of Christians, had now come to understand that the, the word of God as a whole pointed to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would bear the sins of the whole world. And he now saw it. He'd been blinded to it. He'd missed it. He'd, he'd misunderstood the prophecies. But now he got it. And, and he says, look, I'm just believing the word of God, the law and the prophets, which at that time was the Bible that the Jews followed. And he's saying these unbelieving Jews ought to do the same thing. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, but they're missing something. They're missing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And then he says that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Remember, this is the same argument Paul made in the Sanhedrin that caused the, the uproar where they nearly tore him to bits because the Sanhedrin was made up of two political factions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul had been a Pharisee before he got saved, and he knew that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in anything supernatural like that, you know, phenomenalistic. And so by once again pointing that out, he's sort of betraying the disunity within his accusers. But more than that, he's also proclaiming the, the reason for the hope that he has and, and the resurrection of our Lord. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how important that is. And we're going to see everywhere Paul goes, he's proclaiming the risen Lord as the only hope for salvation. So that's the end of Paul's defense. And what happens next, right? What would Felix do? Right? Would he side with the prosecution? Or the defense? Which way would Felix's ruling go? Well, let's pick it up in verse uh, 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a con uh, conscience without offense toward God. He does have a couple more things to say here. That wasn't quite the end. And by the way, in verse 16, this is, once again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago where he mentions, my conscience is clear before God. I'm not here to answer to men. I don't owe these people an explanation. I serve the living God and my conscience is clear. And he makes that statement frequently in his writings. 
so he's wrapping up his defense, and he says, Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So once again, a reference we see to the resurrection. That was Paul's hope. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he repeatedly says, if there's no resurrection, there's no hope, and our faith is in vain. We're about to celebrate the resurrection here in a couple of weeks, the biggest day of the year for believers. Uh, so what happens next? We read it in verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision in your case. In other words, more waiting, more procrastinating, no resolution. And this brings me to the third principle. While you wait, expect the unexpected. We need to cast aside our expectations and be ready for anything. I mean, this was a climactic moment in this account. After the hubbub in Jerusalem, after the journey by night, after making his case and defending himself, while no doubt being exhausted, by the way, from all that had happened in the previous you know, 12 days, surely Paul must have thought this case would bring some resolution. Finally, you know, I've got a sympathetic hearing before this Roman court. Claudius Lysias has rescued me. He clearly is sort of on my side, so to speak. He's certainly not siding with my, the mob that wanted to kill me. Now I've got another Roman you know, governor here listening to my case. This ought to be the end of it. But no, more waiting. And while we wait for the Lord, we need to avoid making in our own minds these artificial deadlines. Avoid that pseudo-spiritual name it and claim it mentality. You know, you've heard people that are trying to conjure up their own, you know, confidence and they'll say, oh, God's going to protect me. I know that I, this is going to come out exactly like I prayed for it to and this is going to happen on this day and I'm just going to claim it before the Lord. Well, that's all well, but faith is faith. It doesn't need an emotionalism. Faith is, in fact, more admirable when it's soft and quiet, not loud and boisterous. Faith is a steadfast confidence or assurance that God is God and you are not and things are going to work out. So we don't need to set expectations. We just need to expect whatever God wants is what will happen. And so uh, when we go back to the text, so he commanded the centurion, this is Felix, to keep Paul, to let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide uh, for or visit him. So they could bring him things, they could visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now think about that. You know, what was God doing in the midst of this waiting period, in the midst of this holding pattern? Providing an opportunity for Felix and his wife to hear the gospel. Now, it's not Paul's job to dictate how that plays out, right? It's our job to share the gospel, leave the results in God's hands. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation, as Paul said in Romans uh, 1, opening letter, opening pages of Romans. Uh, so we, we know that from the text that Felix never received Christ, but still God wanted him to hear the gospel so the convicting work of the Holy Spirit could, 
could do its work on him. And we don't know if down the road, maybe on his deathbed, those seeds that were planted bear, bore fruit and he believed the gospel. We don't know. But God was at work. God was doing something. And notice now, as he responded about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, so Paul is talking about justification. He's talking about how you can only be made right with God through faith in Christ who died and rose again for our sins. Felix was afraid. In other words, he was under conviction. And he said, go away for now. When I have a more convenient time, I will call for you. In other words, more procrastinating. But Paul was faithful. Uh, Luke also gives us a glimpse at what was in uh, Felix's mind in the closing two verses of chapter 24 when he says, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So again, you know, clearly Felix had ulterior motives, but God was working on him. He was troubled by what he was hearing. He was convicted. And uh, he was maybe hoping that Paul would pay him off and then he would let him go, but Paul would have none of that. Paul was waiting on the Lord. He was not going to take matters into his own hands. And so Luke tells us, therefore, Felix sent for him more often and conversed with him. And here's where we understand the two-year timetable. After two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, before he left office, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So we end where we started. More waiting. More procrastinating. And, uh, you know, who could have possibly, possibly thought when Paul got to Caesarea under cover of night that he would be there longer than the Roman governor? And yet he outlasted Felix. And next time we're going to look at his interaction with, with Festus. But when the doors are all closed, stay put. You know, God will allow you to force doors open if you really want to bad enough. But it's always much better in our walk with the Lord if we allow Him to open the doors, right? So while you wait, resist the urge to take matters into your own hands. Keep the big picture in mind. What is God doing here? And expect the unexpected. So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Well, I want to return to David's words. What a great reminder. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What are you waiting for this morning? In a group this size, I can guarantee you there are people waiting here for their son, their daughter, their grandson, their granddaughter to come to faith. Maybe their prodigal son or daughter who might know the Lord, but has walked away from the faith to come back to the faith. Or maybe you're praying for a friend who's an unbeliever and you've been praying for him for years and you want so desperately for them to come to know the Lord. You're waiting. You're in a holding pattern. Maybe you're waiting for some health condition. Can't figure it out. Doctors can't figure it out. Can't get relief. Test after test. Prescription after prescription. Treatment after treatment. Nothing. Wait on the Lord. You know, God's, God's at work. I can't understand it. I can't try to make it better. I wish we could kind of snap our fingers and end the waiting. Maybe you're waiting on reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ who's hurt you, said some harsh things to you unjustly, and you just really are sad by that broken relationship, and you hope maybe they'll reach out. And extend an olive branch, right? 
What are you waiting for? Wait, I say, on the Lord. And if you're here today or within the sound of our voice, uh, either watching a video later or live streaming with us even right now, if you don't know the Lord, then you don't have to wait to come to faith in Christ. That's a today thing. Today is a day of salvation. That's what matters most. The Bible says uh, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the penalty for that sin is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell. But God sent His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, to die in your place and my place on the cross. He rose again on the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. But like all gifts, it has to be received. It's not forced upon you. You don't have eternal life because of your religious heritage, what family you were born into, where you go to church, whether you've been baptized, how good you are, or how good you think you are, or how hard you try. You can only have eternal life by receiving the gift, and that means of receiving the gift is faith. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? And for those of you that already are believers, you've trusted Christ, let me just encourage you. I know it's not easy to be in that holding pattern. You don't know how long it's going to be. You don't know why you're there. You don't know what's going on on the ground. But God has you there for a reason. Wait on the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for just the encouragement that we gain from reading about Paul's life in this circumstance and situation. And Lord, we pray that we would take to heart his example and some of the passages of Scripture that we've looked at that talk about enduring patiently. We know that's not easy, but Lord, by your grace and with your strength, we can do that. We thank you for this time together. Pray that your word would not return void as you promised it wouldn't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.